I'm Jacob Schatz. And I'm Bryce Miller. And this is Talking Atlas. Welcome back to Talking Atlas, everyone. We are just moments away from a second Talking Atlas achievement, similar to one we've completed before, which I think is not how achievements work. I think achievements are kind of a first-time thing. You get a bing and a celebration, and the second time is irrelevant. But I don't care, because today we're going to finish out, finally, after 1.5 and change years of podcast, our brilliant Spectrum series. You know how I love me a completed cycle, Bryce. Yes, I do, Jacob. The only downside is that it's nine episodes instead of ten, which is a little bit weird. Our last one was two-in-one because we didn't have much to say about is it and Simic. They're both enemy colors. They both have fewer factions, so it's a little weird. But hey, nine-episode cycle. You know how I hate nine-card cycles, Bryce. How many nine-card cycles are there? There's the almost cycle. Actually, wait a second. You know what's really appropriate? Oh, no. Well, kind of appropriate. Trivia time. In Return to Ravnica Block, there were nine rare or mythic X spells that were multicolored. One in every guild except Selesnia. Oh, hey. Which is to say, the Green-White Guild on Ravnica. It was not a cycle. It was a happy accident that there were nine other rare multicolored X spells. And here we are, finishing out our cycle with Selesnia. All right, that makes it a flavor win, so I'm back on board. Perfect. It's almost like we intended it. We didn't intend it at all. We didn't at all. This was completely spontaneous. But before we get into the content of the episode proper, we issued you a challenge last episode to which one of you rose to the occasion. My friend and mine, Darren Simrian, at Simrian on Twitter. Is that how you pronounce that? Yes. I always read it for some reason like scry, which doesn't make any sense because the R isn't where it would be for scry. <laughs> But Scrymian sounds so, I don't know, magic-y. I think it's something like Conan the Barbarian-esque. I don't know. It's, it's made up is what it is. Sorry, Darren. Darren's tweet says, I think my favorite design of the Sunforger cycle might be Rakdos Right Knife. And since that really likes tokens, I think the best deck for it is pretty easily Edgar Markov. This comes as very little surprise to me because Darren himself is a very Mardu kind of human. And his favorite kind of deck is the Aristocrats deck, which gets value from sacrificing creatures. So it is only natural that he likes Rakdos Right Knife, which gets blood counters when you sacrifice creatures. The first card that I suggested for this deck as well, in case Darren had somehow missed it, was the Dusk Legion Zealot from Rivals of Ixalan. It's one in a black for a 1-1 vampire that when it enters the battlefield, you draw a card and lose one life. An effect previously seen on a different common at one mana more with an irrelevant creature typing, and that was Phyrexian Rager. Darren already knew of this card and was very happy about it. Other cards that he definitely should have known about were Butcher of Malakir, which just sounds like oodles of fun in a sacrifice-oriented vampire deck. Butcher of Malakir is 5 black black for a 5-4 flying vampire warrior. Whenever Butcher of Malakir or another creature you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, each opponent sacrifices a creature. So whenever you sack a creature to the right knife, everyone else sacks a creature. And then when you pop the right knife to make them sack permanents, they can't sacrifice the creatures because they're all gone already. So they have to sacrifice something much more precious to them. Ew. Yeah. Did I tell you that Darren also likes stacks? Oh, no. <laughs> Be sure to tune in, and by tune in I mean keep listening, till the end of this episode we'll have another prompt for people to tweet at us about, and then we can talk about you 
on the podcast. Your Twitter handle could be here, said by two people who maybe have heard of that Twitter handle before. You'll be famous, or like slightly less famous than us. So like mostly not famous, but that's fine. You'll be on a podcast. You'll be on a podcast. There you go. Anyway, in a long roundabout way, we are about to embark on our final Brilliant Spectrum episode. Brilliant Spectrum is a 10-ish part series in nine episodes about the color philosophy of multicolored pairs. Our habitual quick review, the colors and magic divide among them not only mechanics, but also philosophy and concepts, and how, if you were to embody this color as a person, it would think. And that's been relatively consistent across the coming up on 25 years of magic that we've had. We started Brilliant Spectrum as a means to talk about the weird things or cool things that happen when these colors get together. The two colors that we are speaking of today are green and white, an allied color pair that often has way, way more crossover than any other color pair. Green and white get conflated sometimes because, at least mechanically, they're all about creatures. Philosophically, they are also about unity, the idea of things coming together to become something bigger than the parts. They approach this, though, in slightly different ways. White is more about community in the civic sense, where groups of people come together because of a shared purpose or shared interest. They form organizations, they form cities, clans, whatever you want to call them. Green approaches it from a slightly more, I would say, familial perspective. Do you think that's an accurate term, Jacob? I think, and unfortunately this isn't a terribly useful adjective when referring to green, but from a more natural perspective. Oh. Green assumes that everything is part of a collective unconsciousness, a collection, naturally. Things just are interconnected. That's how the world is. White says, we are stronger when we are together, so let's organize ourselves. Let's make those connections. Let us create them, construct them. There's a bit of a tangential philosophy conversation I'd like to have real quick. And some of it falls back on what traditional fantasy does with the concepts of light and dark. Everywhere you look, you get really tropey fantasy stories, games, books, movies, whatever, where it's the forces of light against the forces of dark. And, you know, all the dark ones are like, they're these demons and these, these obviously evil things from the center of the earth. The good guys are either righteous people or, or angels or, or whatever. And a lot of that has splashback on magic's color philosophy, because there are white and black in magic. They are not dark and light in quite the same way as standard fantasy likes you to do if that's even the correct verb, which it isn't, but I'm going to continue and pretend like it was. (laughs) Black isn't the color of evil in magic. It's the color of ambition, and in some cases, self-sufficiency, which means that, okay, someone who is black-aligned might be more likely to do something we consider evil. On the flip side, because white is more about community, which is a thing that we as humans in a society tend to value a lot, white-aligned characters are often stereotyped as the good guys. But that does not mean that white-aligned characters are good guys or that black line characters are bad guys. And there are plenty of counterexamples to those tropes. Kamigawa Block had a story where the main villain was white-aligned, Konda, he was trying to seize the power of the gods, and the good guy, Toshiro Mazawa, was black-aligned, and he was trying to stop Konda from usurping the power of the gods and probably building some mighty empire. 
This is the kind of discussion that I actually appreciate the Dungeons and Dragons alignment for starting in a way. Because instead of just having a single axis of good to evil, they added in another axis and said, hey, maybe there's another way to classify what types of things are considered positive or negative in terms of categorizing people. So being aligned with the law doesn't always necessarily mean that you are doing good things. White-aligned characters in Magic the Gathering are almost always going to be aligned with some system of law. But those that are associated with the system of law are not necessarily going to be the good guys. Tyrants are also going to be white-aligned in Magic. And to bring this conversation back around to green-white where I was thinking, because of that light and dark, white-aligned characters are often perceived as the good guys, or white-aligned philosophies are perceived as, as good. However, I posit that Racism is white-green. Ooh. Ah, ha, ha. Ooh. And I've mm. touched on this a little bit before, but this seems to be the most appropriate forum for it. Green is the color of not only nature, but what is considered natural. When we look at the blue-green conflict, the nature versus nurture, nurture on the blue side, nature on the green side, understandably, blue says, I can do whatever to improve myself, and the systems that I've been using are not necessarily the ones that are best, or the systems my society has been using are not necessarily always the best. On the other hand, Green says, these are the systems we have used, and they have some amount of, of weight, of value, by virtue of, we have been using them for so long, or there was not perceived to be an issue for so long. Or even, this is simply the way things are. This is simply what nature is. It is immutable. It might have cycles or small changes over time, but... In essence, this is the way that the world is, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think that green is also a color that sometimes will say, this is how things are, and I am not going to acknowledge that it might not be correct. Okay, I won't say that, because it doesn't have quite that amount of self-awareness, but I will say that about green. Green might adhere to something because it is the system, but green won't always acknowledge if that system is incorrect. Now, when green gets supplemented with white, what is the color of community in magic and systems of law and really abstract social systems in general? When you put these two things together, what I think you can get, and I don't know that we've seen this too, too frequently, but I, what I think you could get is we have this system that has been established. That system is discriminatory. And really, I should broaden this because it's not just about racism. It's really about discrimination. This community may have a white-aligned system that historically has discriminated against a certain population. And the green component of that might say, this is how it's always been, in some form. That green portion might even believe that that is the right way, because it has been for so long. I don't have a particular thesis here outside of this, this concept, but it's a good caveat in that whole light versus dark, or yeah, green, it's all about nature, and white, oh, it's all about community. Well, yes, some of those things are true, but they can individually and even together create systems that are themselves heinous, like racism or other discrimination. A last point in your favor here. Another thing that is intrinsic to green that is honestly one of the more interesting things that we don't talk about a whole lot with green as a color is this idea that there are the strong and there are the weak. And this is a function of nature. This is something that green understands. And depending on the other colors that supplement it, it changes what that means. 
for example, a green-black character says, there are the strong, there are the weak, it is right for the strong to triumph over the weak and eat them, basically. Literally or metaphorically. Right, as the case may be. With a white-aligned philosophy applied to that there are the strong and there are the weak, what you usually end up with is there are the strong, there are the weak, and it is good for this system to be in place to enforce that. Regardless of the outcome, regardless of the effect on the individual. Because that's one of the things that green-white is really, really bad about thinking about. Green and white are allied colors, and they share an enemy color in mono-black. Black-aligned philosophy is all about the individual. It's, I should be able to do what I want because I have the audacity to go ahead and do it. Green and white say, no, 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 that would diminish the community. That would impact the community negatively. So anything that the individual wants to do that might otherwise impact the community is completely out of the question. It behooves them to lock in this stratification, this system of there are the strong, there are the weak. We make it codified in our laws, in our rules, in our community. And whatever happens to the individual happens. And that sounds a lot like the worst parts of our society. And those points altogether segue us nicely into Ravnica's xenophobic hippie cult, the Selesnia. <laughs> really, though, I think that is the most succinct way to describe the Selesnia, xenophobic hippie cult. You're totally right. The Selesnia are... I don't even know how I can elaborate on that. I don't have a good way of providing what I just said in more detail. <laughs> Jacob, can you give it a shot? The Selesnia are led by a trio of dryads that fuse together into one entity. And that is pretty emblematic of what the Selesnia are. They say all of the natural elements on Ravnica need to band together, tie themselves up in a cute little bow, and support the rest of the structure that is Ravnica. And this is where a lot of the individuality stuff that you talked about comes into play. Maybe the term hippie cult makes one imagine, hey, you know, everyone has their own path, man. And whatever you gotta do to get where you gotta go is what you gotta go and do, man. Free love. <laughs> and Free bird. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> what? Hmm? Huh? Well, okay. Oh, they, they populate bird tokens. Oh, good, good. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was seconds away from that joke. Seconds. <laughs> <laughs> because the Selesnia really do not emphasize individuality. They're the hippie cult where it's a little bit more cult than hippie in hippie cult. Yes. If you have your little odometer there, definitely lean towards the cult. Not what an odometer does. <laughs> <laughs> your, point your compass to magnetic cult. <laughs> different plane Bryce. spin the dial spin the dial towards cult wheel of cult <laughs> this is the worst game show ever the selesnia always win <laughs> but no individual in the selesnia does right they collectively win and divvying up that prize money is absolutely ridiculous yeah they're not much about individuality they are also kind of an army not quite as much as the Boros Legion, but the Selesnia have serious force behind them. Some of the plot of Return of Ravnica block involved Lazov infiltrating the Selesnia, pretending to be one of their members, an upper-ranking person that Amara knew, and 
inciting them into war with the Boros, and that only stopped because Niv-Mizzet pulled a deus ex machina of, I have this maze, everyone! It only stopped because we've got a third set to make. All right. Oh, it's true. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. The entire subplot of that just gets immediately dropped for Niv-Mizzet's maze. And as much as I love Niv-Mizzet's maze, it could have come at a different time. <laughs> Moving along to a different faction, and one that is slightly more unambiguously righteous, we have the Bant from Alara. Back before Bant fused with the remainder of Alara, it was a collection of city-states. Each of these individual cities was its own microcosm of society. The idea is that Bant, in lacking red-black, had a very ordered way of resolving their conflicts, because war is really messy, and they said, hey, this isn't really good for our society to keep fighting these wars where bunches of people go in and die and we need more equipment and we need to rebuild our cities. So instead, they developed a system of single combat. When there is a dispute between two city-states, they will each send out a champion. And the flavor of their mechanic exalted is that everyone else is somehow supporting that champion. Now, I don't know exactly how that plays out in the flavor, because there are things that will grant keywords or even prevent damage or things like that. I don't know how applicable that is to the actual single combat flavorfully, but the idea is there. And because these are people who are honorable, they are agreeing to this set of rules that have, they have set in stone and is a good thing that we've done for a while. So when a champion loses, their city-state also loses, and it's a lot cleaner than actually going to war. Can I give a brief digression on what I believe the flavor of Exalted is? Absolutely. So Bant only has blue, green, and white mana on it. And ambiently, most planes just have ambient mana. I assume that the green and white forces of magic, I guess, just ambiently supporting community, it almost acts like a conduit when you have a bunch of people supporting one person at the same time. So their act of exalting, as in praising this one particular champion... And it, the sigils probably play into this somehow. Maybe they're, like, focuses of mana that are attached to this one exalted champion. I don't make the rules. I'm making this up as I go along. I think that all of that green and white energy just pumps into this one champion, and then they get stronger, and they're more likely to win the single combat. In fairness, that's kind of how it works in athletics. Kind of. Home field advantage is a thing. Ooh, I was actually having opinions about this earlier this week. Do go on. Oh, man. Look at that. When a team is playing in their stadium with their fans being the majority of people in the stands, they tend to do a bit better, which is maybe not surprising because it's demoralizing when everyone in the audience is against you. I feel like it's not much of a stretch to think that in this sword and sorcery universe that home field advantage can be taken on the road because people with magic are following you. I don't know how this ties into Exalted, so we're getting off the rails here, but one last thing about sports, I guess. About sports, because we talk about sports on this magic show. Yeah, apparently? I was hearing of one, I don't know if it was during a Super Bowl game or during a playoff game or something, where they tried to do a, but this shows you how much I know about sports, they tried to do a maneuver on the sports field. A maneuver? Yes, they tried to pull some sort of operation there on the green. Uh, and, uh... One of the players was trying to yell to another player to indicate something. I believe they call it the snap. 
And uh, the crowd was just so loud that they couldn't hear that the ball was being snapped. Like, they couldn't hear this person shouting from, like, 20 feet away. And so the man whom snaps snapped the ball, and it just went flying off. And the guy who was supposed to catch it didn't catch it. And I'm like, how is this an acceptable part of your sports game? How does this happen in... This is just a part of the game, and there are no rules against it, and there's no precautions or anything taken against it. And admittedly, I don't know exactly how you do that without fundamentally altering how football games are held, but it was wild to me that this was a part of the game that was not a part of the game, but had to be accounted for and seriously impacted a play. And then I thought about the secondary market, and it made a lot of sense to me. (laughs) For that scenario, I prefer to think of it as audience participation, but only for large values of X, where X equals your audience size. My only concern philosophically is that there is a part of your game that is not part of your game. And if you don't try to overcome that, if you don't try to put stops in your system to stop that from being a part of your game, then you kind of implicitly accept that it is part of your game. And that's a little tough with me to reckon. Sorry, I, I'm finding this whole conversation really amusing because we, two game designers, are talking about sports, and <laughs> this this is the this is the problem that we look at this and we say this is this weird arcane system, and really, it you need to define what your what your goals are here and what you're trying to do, and then you need to isolate the things that are not part of your game and remove. But this is sports. This is not. We are not designing a game. Right. Right. Even even Jacob and I as somewhat amateur game designers, I think would be capable of making football a better game. But it wouldn't matter, because that's not how football works. Right, that's not what football is. And so for stuff like football and sports, I'm like, no, it's perfectly fine, because it is now established and accepted that this is going to be part of the game. This is something that if you're building a team, I mean, even just the concept of having these people be employed is in and of itself an entirely separate system from the game that is part of the game. But it's accepted, and everybody gets it. So you work with it. And the secondary market does essentially function like that. Bant. It's not about sports. (laughs) Bant is kind of about sports. A little bit. But the sports... Do the sports involve killing people? Does someone kill the other champion when they win the combat? I don't think that's necessary. I, I think agree? it's defeat the other champion, because I don't know that death exists on Bant in the proper sense. I imagine it must, but anyway. Entropy doesn't exist on Bant. Really? Black and red magic aren't there. Oh, the the influences mean... of black and red magic don't happen. There are no graveyards on Bant. Okay, I, we don't know that for sure. I feel like people probably still die on occasion. They have medics. They must have dead people. I think they just turn into angels. Actually, I could believe that. Anyway, there's another piece of Bant that I wanted to talk about before we move on to Naya. And it's something that came up in the last Brilliant Spectrum, I think, with the card Jesse and Infiltrator. Jesse and Infiltrator is a blue-green spy. And this exemplifies the change from green-white or green-white-blue to something that is just green-blue. A green-blue character on Bant can, like Jesse and Infiltrator and its ilk do look at the system and say, yeah, this is a pretty good system. 
I think I can abuse it. I think there's a way that I can act that will give me an edge. But I think the, the key is that it's not so prominent that the system breaks down. Because if everyone, it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma almost. If everyone said, I can get an edge if I do this disingenuous thing, or hey, my opponent's going to abuse the system, so I need to as well. Once that starts happening, it all breaks down, and you're going to get regular old conflict and war. But there's only a little bit of gaming of the system, so the system can sustain itself. A Jessian spy goes to the training regimen of the opposing champion and reads their playbook. That's what a spy does on Bant. Mm, uh, oh, 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 they're going to go for the two-point conversion. We got to really watch out for that <laughs> our next battle. Okay, I need it. This is the part, this is the the one, the, the moment, the tiniest, tiniest moment where I can take advantage of the fact my father likes much more in the way of sports than I do. A great deal more. He is delighted that our home team, the Philadelphia Eagles, is going to the Super Bowl for the first time in a long time, like 12 years or something. I have a lot of miscellaneous sports knowledge, far more than the average person would ever assume from a game-developing, magic-podcasting, gender-discussing nerd. I can watch most mainstream American sports and actually know what's going on, so I'm so glad that, if nothing else, I had this moment to make a terrible joke that is at least using some iota of that random sports knowledge <laughs> that I never have occasion to use. Sorry, Dad. I wish that each joke on Talking Atlas had this much ex exaltation about the background and the build-up of the knowledge required to successfully execute the joke immediately following its execution. Jacob, that would require us to use much more intelligent humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because my next one was, ah, yes, I see they're going for the scrum at the halfwit. Hmm, bold move. <laughs> Wait, scrum is a game development term. Scrum is a rugby term, Bryce. Really? Yes. Ha! Shows you how much I know. <laughs> Straight minutes on how you have sports knowledge. And I, a, a, I said, I said, mainstream American sports. Oh. Rugby is not a mainstream American sport. <laughs> totally Though I'm sure right. my rugby playing friends are going to be very upset with me. Because, again, we make games. Like, every morning we have a scrum. We talk about what we're working on. That's where I associate it with. Yeah, that's taken directly from rugby. Good to know. Because it's a bunch of people getting into a huddle and yelling, which is essentially what a scrum is during <laughs> rugby. Naya is the other faction <laughs> on Bant. <laughs> Naya is the other faction on Alara that has green and white in its color philosophy. Except that instead of supplementing it with blue, it supplements it with red. So instead of being drawn more to the white half... It is drawn more to the green half of the white-green color pairing. <laughs> Naya sees the systematic construction and growth that goes along with green-white and says, but what if we did more of it? What if we just kept going? Hey, you see how that rhino is built? What if we just added more rhino? Some rhino is good. What if more rhino were better? And then it kept going until there was most rhino. And that's what you need to know about Naya. I'm getting there. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Maya, at the very least, <laughs> agrees that the natural system is the best possible system that there is. Nature is doing a pretty good job. It's why it's lasted for so long. So if we kicked it into overdrive, everything would be totally better, right? I mean, sometimes people might get stepped on, but that's just nature. Like, sometimes you just get stepped on by most rhino, and there's nothing we can do about it. Okay, I'm back. What did I miss? Uh, most of Naya, do you have any thoughts to share on that particular part of Alara? Yeah, totally. Good. So we didn't talk much about religion. Oh. Religion is also something that is heavily green-white, because by its definition, religion is about, generally, and by most mainstream religions today, it's about adherence to a certain subset of things. In many cases, it's a document, or this collection of usually fairly static, or if malleable, in the, it's malleable in the very long term on the hundreds and thousands of years. Most often, it's rituals and ideology is what persists. These things change over time, but there is a group that is associated with a particular set of rituals and the ideology that causes them to perform those rituals, and they just keep doing it, and that's the rules. On Bant, there is worship, or at least some amount of religion surrounding the Amesha. Amesha? The Amesha? I'm not sure. We don't know a ton about that particular deity. I think they're aligned with the angels in some form. Naya has a different form of worship. I think Bant is maybe a little bit more structured, and there, there is a deity. On Naya, it's more of a system of reverence. And I'm not sure whether this is simply different angles of green-white, or if it's a take on how those other colors, how blue and red respectively, tilt the idea of religion in one direction or another. On Naya, people worship the gargantuans, the ancients, the, the things that are big and or old. The things that are most, rhino or otherwise. Right, of course. The, sorry, the things that are most. It's also a lot less centralized. For the most part, I imagine this breaks down a little bit when you're talking about people like Progenitus. And by people, I mean the five-headed Hydra god thing. Progenitus is people too. Progenitus is at least multiple people. You might have a particular group around Progenitus, but broadly, people worship this hierarchical, maybe not hierarchical, because it's not about, oh, I have my place and you have yours. It's like, no, there's this ancient. It's huge. Look at it. It's the most. The most what? <laughs> the most. The most it. I have a hard time seeing how red would influence that differently. I feel like blue's effect on religion would make it a bit more malleable and willing to adapt to whatever people's current needs are, and that maybe red could be a little bit more emphatic, a little bit more spur of the moment, but that's not really true of either of them. I don't get the sense that the idea of a mesha is especially malleable, and I don't get the sense that the gargantuan worship on Naya is really especially fervent. It's definitely less ordered, which red would do, but that's all I've got. I think you could look at it more as the reason for their devotion. And this gets into the red versus blue, emotional versus intellectual conflict. Of course, the people on Bant are going to worship the Amesha because it is logical to do so. It supports them. It seems to give it back to them in some way through the sigils. Or I'm not super familiar with Bant's religion, but it's also, in that sense, a little bit more complex, a little bit more shrouded a little bit more systematic systematic it's thinkier it's got a little bit more thought to it the worship of the gargantuans is that's giant i love it 
that's an emotional response. You look at that thing that is giant, and things get giant for all sorts of reasons. It eats a lot. Like, that's not particularly inspiring on its face. But if you look at, if you've ever looked at an actual mountain in the wild and become overcome with emotion, that's red, baby. <laughs> the last three color faction that we get to talk about that has both green and white in its identity are the Abzan of Tarkir. The Abzan are the green, white, black faction centered in white, if I'm remembering correctly. Certainly not in black. Right. The Abzan, I love the Abzan because they are so unique and have such nuance in their integration of all three of their colors. For white, they are a structured organization. They have these gigantic buildings that they all work together to make and sustain. They care so much about the organized idea of family, not just who you are born from, but who you choose to accept into your family and who chooses to accept you into their family. On the green half, they like trees a lot. I mean, that's not the only thing. They revere their ancestors. And that idea of gaining wisdom from the past is an inherently green idea. But they also have kin trees, which tie into the black part of their identity. Because it's a form of necromancy. They put the spirits of their ancestors into these trees, and then they can just sort of talk to them, or borrow them for battle for a while. Gain their wisdom. It's a totally normal thing to keep your granddad's ghost in a tree. Like I've always said. Um... Jacob, is there anything you need to tell me? Not a thing, Bryce. Cool, in which case I'll continue on to... I want to grab on to the point you made about the Abzan and what I would epitomize as the family you choose, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. We spent a whole heck of a long time talking about how green-white is the color combination of racism. Interestingly, it can also be the color combination of the purest acceptance. Because if your system, if you say the way that... I have always done this or that we as some subset of society have always done this is that everyone has value. That is very green white, but that is about encouraging diversity and taking in and treating everyone equally because that is your base assumption that all things, all people, all life, what have you, have value. In the events of Fate Reforged, the Abzan are overtaken by the Dromoka, a green white faction of dragons. And in the story that describes the fall of this clan, it's a very orderly takedown of the Abzan. The Dromoka engage them in combat, a war skirmish basically goes on, and the Dromoka end up winning. There's a council between the Khan of the Abzan, Dagatar, and Dromoka, the Dragonlord. They get there and they hash out details of surrender. Which is a weird thing to do with a dragon, but sometimes you do what you have to do. Some of this goes back to what we discussed with Bant. Because of a certain belief in the systems of war that was shared between a white-green-black faction, the Abzan, and the green-white faction, the Dromoka, it was possible for them to come together and say, yes, one of us has lost this battle, let us discuss the terms of it. In other situations, perhaps with more red and or black in the faction, you might be more likely to simply win the fight and drive them out. The best example of this is the Silumgar taking down the Sultai, in which Silumgar just completely oppresses the Sultai. They are essentially turned into slaves for the Silumgar brood. 
Meanwhile, in Dragons of Tarkir, the Abzan are pretty well integrated with the Dromoka. Even though Dragonlord Dromoka is still in charge of that entire clan, the group shots that you see of individuals in the Dromoka clan supporting the Dromoka dragons are really similar to those of the Abzan. There's a diverse array of characters, humans, orcs, the Inox, the Hound People. It just so happens that they're all wearing dragon scale armor and fighting alongside dragons. So you have to assume that the green-white nature of both of these factions had them both come down to this negotiation table and say, hey, there's a way that we can do this that doesn't completely botch everything that you guys have. And indeed, in the story, that's what happened. The Dromoka's one request, I guess demand, was that they stop performing necromancy and stop putting their granddads in trees, because apparently that's weird. No comment? That's right. Moving along, then, to the Shadowmoor <laughs> Elves. In Lorwyn Block, the elves were black-green, and they were a kind of a cross-section of some of the racism stuff we discussed, and the the strong will survive and destroy the weak, and that is the nature of things that Jacob described earlier. Because the Lorwyn elves put a lot of stake in beauty, specifically physical appearance, your naturally born physical appearance. We're not talking how you dress, or how you do your hair, or what makeup you put on if you choose to. No, it's pretty much what you look like as a derivative of how you were born and what has happened to you. Did someone break your horns off? Did someone scar you or disfigure you in some way? Do you just have bad horns? Because that's a bummer, but also you're worth less and sometimes worthless. Yeah. Lorwyn elves are jerks. They're such jerks. Ugh. When you get into the Shadowmoor elves, they go to green-white. And I don't think their identity is quite as strong, except for they are the light in the darkness. They are the only thing, the only, I guess, faction in all of Shadowmoor that would be considered, objectively, I would say, the good guys. They break evil hexes, they help people out, they have a supportive community. There are other communities, like the Kithkin, but the Kithkin are a weird, kind of creepy hive mind. And I think they get turned into Dwergar? No, I don't think so. Are the no, Kithkin the still in like... Shadowmoor? Yeah, they're super creepy and hive-mindy. Oh. A few quick flavor texts on this tangent. Apothecary Initiate says, Kithkin jealously hoard their knowledge of poultices and remedies so that no outside threat can benefit from their wisdom. I guess the mono-white take here is, we need to stay safe so we will be completely insular and just into our constructed society where Green-White says, yes, we have a very nice constructed society that is also a part of a larger green system, a larger natural system that we have to take part in, or else we're still going to be jerks. Maybe one of the most exemplary flavor texts for the Kithkin in Shadowmoor is from Miss Meadow's Skulk. Doyo suspected the Boggarts of brewing a plot against his crop, so he scythed away his grain to clear the sight lines. <laughs> it's kind of hateful and self-defeating, Something, something, missing the planes for the wheat? <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> and that brings us to the final green-white faction on our lists. And by lists, I mean singular list, because we don't make separate lists. That's for least favorite cards or favorite card episodes. The Crossbreed Labs. The most simicky factions since, I mean, ever, kind of. They're more simicky than the Simic, which is funny. I've been thinking about that. 
And on its face, I understand that because it just takes what the Simic apparently do, which is combine disparate animals, smash them together and see what comes out. For context, the Crossbreed Labs is where we have that Deerbird Ape Druid, among many other combinations of creature types. And for another broader set of reference, this is from the latest Unset Unstable, in case anybody wasn't clear about that. Right, that's an important piece of context, because otherwise we just sound crazy. This is on the plane of Bablovia, which is made up of mad scientists. So this is the biologically oriented mad science faction. And I keep thinking about the comparisons that people draw between Crossbreed Labs and the Simic, and I get it. Obviously. They're smashing up animals. That's totally exactly what the Simic do. But I almost look at the way that Crossbreed Labs uses science versus what the Simic use science for. And I see the difference in the green-white and green-blue takes on this. Crossbreed Labs does science because it believes in science as an institution, basically. It has classrooms where this stuff is taught. I mean, it goes above and beyond, obviously, but the person who is in charge is a a well-respected researcher who has just happened to do the most science to himself. Dr. Julius Jumblemorph, who is all creature types. The Simic use science as a means to an end. Science is used to change the world distinctively towards a particular goal. So... I want this thing to swim better, I'm going to take the swimming parts of an alligator and combine them with the swimming parts of a fish, and it's going to be real, real good at swimming. So in that sense, the green-blue idea of using science as a lens to view the natural world is so that I can manipulate it and improve things to a particular end, to get things towards a world that I would more like to live in. Crossbreed Labs says... The world and nature is full of all these different things that is all these different parts. And we can put all of those parts together at the same time, and it'll be really cool. And that's it. It is the system existing for its own sake and to support itself, basically. If I put a chicken head on me, then I will have a better idea of how to use a chicken head in the future, maybe. I don't know. They're crazy. Jacob, I want you to look towards the general direction of where you know I'm recording, and I'm going to look in the general direction of where I know you're recording, and I want each of us to imagine giving the other a pat on the back for finishing a nine-episode series, finally. All right, now that we're done patting ourselves on our backs, I have a challenge for you, our listeners. And that is, with the conclusion of Brilliant Spectrum, that's all we ever talk about color philosophy in, for the most part. We get into it sideways, we talked about it with Planeshift Ixalan. We might mention it as part of a character's bio, their development, whatever. But we don't really get this down and dirty with color philosophy that often. So if you out there have some idea for future episodes or even whole segments that involve color philosophy, do let us know. You can find us on Twitter. We're going to say our handles in just a moment. And I have no more to add to that thought. So I really should have concluded the sentence right there. <laughs> I'll say that I love talking about color philosophy. It's one of the coolest things in magic to me, that we have this system that is inherent to the game, but that is also useful for self-expression and understanding of character and understanding of concepts and motivations and feelings. It's that touchy-feely stuff that gets me coming back to this idea and the game. 
So please, if you have any ideas at all, even if they're really simple, if they're really complex, whatever you have, let us know, because I want to keep talking about color philosophy on this podcast. Well, Jacob, if our viewers perhaps wanted to respond to the prompt that I just offered, where might they find you? They could find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit, and that is such a cop-out. You Oh, it's so, it so is. Oh, oh goodness. And Bryce, if someone wanted to understand the implications of kickfielding the goal half, where would they be able to find you? They can find me on Twitter as walking underscore Atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash opalnebula. Thank you all so much for listening to this final episode in the Brilliant Spectrum series. We did it, team. We did it. And until next time, happy planeswalking, everyone. Mm-hmm.